0: You can be seated uh, as we we promised you this will be an abbreviated service, so some of you are wondering, does that mean it's an abbreviated sermon and the answer is yes, it is uh, in fact, when I was looking at my word count, I thought I've not preached this short since I was uh, a teenager preaching my short sermons at uh, rest homes, and what you what you didn't know because when I came last year, I never told anybody this, and I wasn't about to uh, is that when I was Doing that ministry, I had, um, I had two different people who died during my sermons. So, in you know, when you're 17, 18, not really sure if you want to do this with the rest of your life, that doesn't really help. Um, and maybe I made the wrong decision, but here I am. So, hopefully, um, we're all still alive at the end. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 16, Luke 16. In your Bibles, the uh, verses won't be on the screen, so go ahead and turn there. And we'll read the first um, 11. Well, we'll go ahead and read uh, through verse 13. Luke 16, uh, 1 through 13. And he said also unto his disciples There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg, I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses." So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. That's eighty. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, but we'll commit to your trust the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. My title this afternoon is this, A Crafty Sinner's Lesson, for short-sighted Christians. A crafty sinner's lesson for short-sighted Christians. Jesus knew the power of imagination, which is why he's so often taught in parables. And we understand the power of imagination if you read novels or you binge TV shows or you go to see movies. We love how stories communicate ideas. Now, now Jesus could have said in like a propositional form. God loves you so much, he'll always welcome you back. But instead, he gives us the story of the prodigal son, which is a lot more powerful than just the proposition, right? That's what he's doing here. And with the other parables, he's using our imagination by telling a story to get something across. Now, what's different about this parable is it is seen by most people to be especially difficult. And the reason is obvious. The protagonist is not a good guy, right? We know the good Samaritan is a good guy. We call him the good Samaritan, right? It's kind of obvious. The father in the the story of the prodigal son, clearly a good guy. Jesus is trying to teach us a lesson by a a guy that no, no matter how you look at this, is doing the wrong thing. And then Jesus tells us in a story, as he interprets it for his audience and for his readers, that this man represents how the children of this world are better at something than God's own people. So how can we learn from this role model, this greedy, dishonest person in Jesus' story? Well, Jesus is going to use this deceitful businessman, this steward, to teach us about, ironically, how to handle money and possessions. If you think that sounds strange, then buckle up, and hopefully by the end you'll understand why. In the first three verses, Jesus invites us to imagine a wealthy man who hears some bad news. Even though he's got a lot of money, the person in charge of handling his resources is doing a really bad job. So, he gets the pink slip. And this puts the steward in a difficult position. There's no social safety net quite like we have today. and If he loses his job, he loses his future security. What's he going to do when he gets, when he gets fired and his paychecks stop coming? What's he going to do for employment? It's going to be hard to get another job as a financial steward when your last reference fired you because you were dishonest, right? He says he doesn't want to dig, and that doesn't mean he's thinking about digging a hole and crawling into it, although that's maybe what you would feel like if you lost your job. It's an idiom for manual labor. He's been doing this financial thing long enough, like he doesn't want to go back to manual labor, right? And he doesn't, he, he can't stand the thought of being a beggar and lose his social status. So he's in a difficult position. And here's what he decides to do. He refuses simply to live in the present and enjoy what he has while he has it. He refuses to say, well, I've got this one last paycheck, I've got this job for probably another few days, I'm going to live it up while I'm in this sphere of society, and then when it all comes crashing down, it's all going to come crashing down. He doesn't do that. Now, a lot of people do that when they hit rock bottom, but not him. He does something that's actually uh, morally wrong and yet insightful at the same time. In in verses 4 to 7, his craftiness goes to work. He, in the ancient world, because a steward or a financial manager could act in the stead of their boss, he goes to his boss's clients and he wants to settle their debts. Because of the amount of money that these debts were worth, these must have been very, very wealthy clients. If they were allowed to get into this much debt, it meant they had a lot of money, a lot of, or we should say, a lot of resources. So they've been owed, or they owe a lot of, of of resources to the steward's boss, he goes and, and totals their bills, and then he makes some cuts. Now, Jesus tells us why he does this. He wants to get in with powerful people, so that when uh, the paycheck finally stops coming, when his termination is finally there, when he's out the door, he has someone with means to go to, to welcome him back into their homes. And that can literally mean give him a place to stay, or most likely mean They'll take him in as their steward and give him a job. Not because he's honest, but because he saved them so much money in this deceitful tactic. Now, this would obviously be unethical (laughs) to do this. And it's going to lose his boss a lot of money. But he is so focused on his future... He is, in his greed and in his dishonesty and in his craftiness, he is so focused on creating something to help him when he loses his job in the future that he's willing to do this. He understands this basic truth that as someone who has been fired and is told to turn his account numbers in, he only has a limited amount of time to use the connections that he has been entrusted with. So he decides, I'm going to exploit these connections for all they're worth in order for me to have future benefit. He goes to each of the people that owes his master money. The oil debt uh, was worth about three years of a a three years average salary, and and then the discounted wheat was the value of eight to ten years of an average salary for the time. This is a lot of money that he is unjustly saving these people and hence uh, creating the situation where they owe him, right? And so that's what he does. Now, verse 8's really interesting because at the beginning of verse 8, there is maybe a surprising response from his boss. Now, there's a couple things going on. You know, for one, the man is confirming that he was an unjust steward, right? He, he is confirming that he didn't handle money well, that he wasn't honest with the books, because he's cooking the books right now as he's going out the door. But what's interesting, if you look down at the beginning of, of verse number 8, um, his master actually praises him. He's impressed. Uh, the, the, his his lord, which is his his master, his employer, is impressed not because he's happy of what's been what's been done to him, right? But because of how shrewd this man is, so he commends him. It's a, like a touche moment. He's hurt, he's wounded, he's going to be really messed up financially, but he can't help but be impressed by how crafty and shrewd this terrible employee was. So he praises him. Now Here's what's really interesting, beginning at the end of verse 8. And it's Jesus' interpretation, that is what Jesus wants to teach us about the parable. J- Jesus adds this after the uh, even his boss, who has been wronged, greatly commends him. Jesus says, uh, kind of explains why he's telling the story. For the children of this world are in their generation. And that's, by the way, the sinful and adulterous generation that he's been preaching about. Right? The people, this is the generation that loves their sin and hates God and rejects, says no to the Messiah. That's the generation, this, the people of darkness, the people that, that follow Satan. He says they're wiser than the children of light. They're wiser than the children of light. Now, we have to be careful in talking about what Jesus says and what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus is not using this man as a role model for how to financially steward other people's money. Right? So if you deal in the financial sector and that's somehow connected to your line of work, your vocation that God has called you in, Jesus is not saying, if you want to know how to take your calling in life seriously, here's a great pattern. Do what this guy did. No, Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying that the children of this evil generation, the children that follow the kingdom of darkness are better than the children of light, but in this matter, they are wiser. Even in their sin, and greed. In this man's desire to better himself by hurting others, he has more thought for the future than the Christians who are reading Luke's gospel. Now, what he does with the future is obviously really bad, and Jesus doesn't commend that at all. But he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the future. So that's why in verse 9, Jesus' instruction is not to the children of darkness, but but to the sons of light, to the people that are following him, to you and I, if you know Jesus, Jesus' instruction in verse 9 is for you. He wants you to look at this man, this fictional story, and take something away from it. I say unto you, verse 9, based on all this, because of this story, because of this truth, make to yourselves, friends, of the mammon, of unrighteousness that when you fail an idiom for death they may receive you into everlasting habitations now that's a mouthful of a verse so let me break it down for you like the man in the story as followers of Jesus our life on this earth is very short it's limited and there's a temptation it, it, sometimes, because of God's blessing and God's goodness, there's a temptation for us to fixate so much on the here and now that we forget to think about what's coming. We forget to, about, to to think about the future. We, As Christians, we know these lives are temporary, and yet for some reason, we act as if they are eternal. But eternal life comes next. As Christians, we know that we're going to die, but for some reason, we often act as if we, we are never going to die in the way we treat our mammon, that is our money and our possessions. You go to Sunday school, and if the teacher asked, is everyone appointed to die, all the kids raise their hand, yes. And yet, if you were to look at how you use your time, if you were to look at your credit card statement, your bank statement, it could appear on the outside as if you thought this present life And its enjoyments and its comforts was all there was. Even though you know that it's not true. When he talks about unrighteous mammon, Jesus is not saying that you should enter a prostitution ring or open up a casino. He's not talking about making money in unrighteous ways. He's talking about the world in general is unrighteous. So our material possessions and our money, even if we are living righteously, it's all tainted with this unrighteous, sinful world. So the thing to do is not to hide in a mountain and run away from it. But rather, Jesus is saying we should use it, but use it for what? Use it in such a way, like this man did, that in our eternal life, in our everlasting habitations, there will be friends to have us in their homes. You know what Jesus is saying here? Use your money, use your possessions to make friends for heaven. Use the stuff you have now, this very temporary stuff from this unrighteous, fleeting world, this life that's a vapor. Use what God has given you to make friends for heaven. Like the men in the parable, as Christians, we should see that judgment day is coming. In other words, we're not getting fired, but our time is running out. That's why he acts with such urgency in his evil deeds. Why? Because he he knows the clock is against him. And Christians, if you believe as we ought to in the resurrection and in an eternal world to come, then in light of what's coming, what you do with your money and your possessions and your time now, it's very fleeting. It's very fleeting. In fact, and this is really Jesus using the lesser to the greater, we should be more urgent in how we use our resources for the future than this man used his resources if we take Judgment Day seriously. Like the steward, our wealth and resources are not our own. They're somebody else's. And if someone who handled them so wickedly and unjustly could look to the future and realize my present circumstances, my present comfort, my present pleasure is not all there is, shouldn't we be able to do the same? Shouldn't we? Some people will say, well, David, I come to church here about spiritual things, money is not spiritual. And how I spend my money has nothing to do with my Christian life. That's not true. Jesus talks about money a lot. Not only does Jesus talk about money, he's not giving like life hacks. He's doing a lot more than that. He is saying that as you live out your discipleship, as you follow Jesus, it's going to impact how you think about your money and possessions. That how you think about your wealth, the mindset that you have with your wealth reflects whether or not you're really following Jesus in this area of your life. And as Christians, we're called to follow Jesus with our money, not by focusing on the here and now, but in how we can use it for the future. How we can spend our money and use our resources to make friends for heaven. We'll talk about some practical ways in how to do that. Now, I want you to notice verse 13, the end of our text, because verse, verse 13, for a lot of people, is kind of like a bumper sticker verse. That is, a verse... You know, that, that sort of takes a life of its own, and people forget where it's found in the Bible. And you may think, what does verse 13 have to do with this story? No man can serve two masters? What does this have to do with this very bizarre story? Well, here's the point disciples following Jesus use money, but they don't serve money. We see money as a means to an end and not as an end in itself. At least we're supposed to, right? If we take this story seriously, if we're going to serve Jesus then as our king, we can't also serve money as our king. Money, if it's not our king, wealth, resources, our houses, our cars, whatever God has given you to steward, that can't be an end in itself. Those are tools we should use, we should really exploit in order to do kingdom work that's going to last after we die. So here's the the point of this text, and then I'm going to give some ways to apply it, and then we'll be done. Here's Luke 16, 1 to 13, in one sentence. Jesus' followers should prioritize eternal rewards by strategically using temporal possessions to expand Jesus' kingdom. Some of you are thinking that's almost as long as the whole chapter, but it's not quite that long. Okay? We prioritize eternal rewards. We think that is, we think about the future. We think: am I gonna have friends? In heaven, that are there because I sacrificed. That's the idea. He knew he was losing his job, and he said, After I lose this job, is there going to be anyone that can welcome me in? So he acts unjustly. We look to the future knowing judgment day is coming, knowing that our eternal life will far outweigh this life, that our eternal life is far more consequential than if we have some extra Starbucks money or if we can go on a vacation every three months. Or if we can upgrade our car every three weeks. We know that there's something more to life than our present enjoyment, our present comfort. He knew he was running out of time. And if we follow Jesus, we ought to know we are running out of time. So then we're given an option. We can spend all of our money on the things that will disappear. Or we can set aside some money and set aside some resources for the things that won't disappear. That's the point. As Christians, we can be short-sighted. We can forget that we live for, we we can start to act like we're living for the present instead of living in the present. But as believers, we don't live for the present. We live in the present for the future. And I know it's hard to remember, but that's what Jesus calls us to think when it comes to our, that's how Jesus calls us to think when it comes to our, our possession. So here's just a few ways we can put some feet on this text. First of all, If I take Jesus' parable seriously, I will invest my money into the church and into its ministries. David, are you standing up there telling us we should give money? Yes. Yes, of course I am. And I'm not going to be ashamed to do that. And the reason is because what we do, and as long as we steward the money well at this church, as long as we steward the money well at this church, what we're doing with those investments is work that makes an eternal difference. Uh, we have staff not so we can just sit here in our offices and occupy space. It's not what we do. We have staff so we can reach more people with the gospel. So we can reach kids with the gospel and their parents with the gospel. So we can reach teenagers with the gospel and seekers that have questions about the gospel. We have staff to help people and to study scripture and preach sermons and to pray and equip other people in the church to evangelize. Why? Because we want to have friends in heaven. Right? We, we, if you're giving to the church, here's one way to think about it. It's not just a tax write-off. You ought to be giving, at least with this in mind, Judgment Day is coming. My life is very temporary. I want there to be people in heaven that heard the gospel because I sacrificed and gave money to Fellowship Baptist Church. Now, there is a connection there. Because the Great Commission... Uh, that encourages us, that that commands us to share the gospel is done through sacrificial work. And it's always been that way. That's because, of course, the gospel doesn't end here in liberal. The gospel doesn't end with our liberal love events that connect people to our church, that raise awareness of our church so that we can have a pathway to talk to them about Jesus so that they can receive Jesus and be baptized and then be a part of this church so they can reach others For Jesus, we're also doing this around the world in missions. That is why we encourage people not only to give proportionally to the church, but to give to missions. We send missionaries and equip them financially so they can preach the gospel in other places, even in some very difficult places, so they can start churches in the United States where there's not a clear gospel-preaching church. Now, there are some obstacles to this, especially when people are hurting and there's an economic downturn. And if you, you, know, you, you, if you Google today, like, housing recession, now some of you are going to do that right now. Please don't do that right now. But if you Google later today, housing recession, you're going to think, man, I, my house is losing money. It's not as valuable as it was like a week ago. That can, be, that can be really upsetting. And I don't neglect any of that. But there's a temptation with those difficulties to say, I can't afford to give. I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to give a portion of my income to something else like the church. But maybe you should think about it this way. If this parable is just an image of our own lives, that we're running out of time, that judgment is coming, that accounting day is coming, where we have to tell Christ what we did with the resources he has given us. Perhaps we can't afford not to give if we take this Seriously. Second thing is that we can invest our time. Will you have friends in heaven that welcome you into their homes for eternity because you invested time in them? Now, now you, can say, you can say all you want. Um, evangelism's not my gift. It's not my thing. I'm, I, I can't talk to people about Jesus. The vast majority of people that become Christians are not people that come to Christ through an incredibly gifted evangelist. Now that's happened. I've met, people, I've met people all over the place who watched Billy Graham on TV and got saved. And it's, those are amazing stories. And I'm thankful for Billy Graham and people like that. They were especially gifted. But you don't have to be especially gifted to lead people to Jesus. Most people that get saved don't encounter um, a big-time evangelist. They encounter other Christians who are willing to spend time investing in them so they could hear about Christ. It does take time. And by the way, one of the things that the staff does is we equip people to evangelize. So if you're wondering, I don't know how to share the gospel, call me and set up a meeting. I can can show you how to share people the gospel. And even if you don't want to go through a Bible study with them, I'll do it or I'll find someone and equip them to do it to help reach your friend for Christ. Third, we can use our hospitality as a means for evangelism. That is... And this is a beautiful picture of Christian hospitality. We can bring people into our homes so that in eternity they can bring us into their homes. When was the last time you had a meal with a non-Christian? When was the last time you had a non-Christian in your house? And I'm not talking about the FedEx guy because you had to sign for something. Although you can evangelize the FedEx guy. Like, well, I need a fellowship with other Christians. Well, yeah. But the other Christians you're fellowshipping with, how do you think they became Christians? That someone, at some point, spent time with them when they weren't Christians. And if they were raised in church, then somebody probably did that with their parents or grandparents. No, we we, we need fellowship. We need encouragement. We need to use hospitality for fellowship and discipleship. Absolutely. But if we're not having non-Christians in our homes and we're not sharing our food with them, do we really take Jesus' teaching here seriously? that we need to use our resources to make friends for heaven. 10,000 years from now, when it comes to the way you use your money, the way you use your house, the way you use your stuff that God has given you, 10,000 years from now, how much will bring you joy and how much will bring you regret? Now, for a lot of us, there's going to be regret, right? Some of us have immediate buyer's remorse. You buy something on Amazon, and before it even gets to your house, you're like, that was a waste of money, and you haven't even got it yet. There's going to be a lot of buyer's remorse when we give an accounting on that day and we're reminded of all the resources God gave us, how much of those we leveraged for the gospel and how much of those we wasted on our temporal comforts because we acted like Judgment Day was never coming and we acted like we would have this job of steward forever when we don't. We don't. My son is, one of his new phrases that he's obsessed with is uh, wasting out. And uh, anytime something is left out of the refrigerator, if I get the milk out, he'll say, Dad, it's wasting out. You got to put it back in the fridge. He's so concerned that we're going to throw away something that that he wants to be kept safe. By the way you spend your money, the way you use your gifts that God's given you, the way you use even your home, the way you spent your time this week, in light of eternity are the resources God has given you wasting out. are they wasting out. What are you investing in that matters for the future? And I don't mean your own future. Now, it's good to invest for 10 years from now, 20 years from now when you're older. I'm not talking about that. What are you investing in now that will matter in 10,000 years? What are you doing right now with what God has given you that will enable people to welcome you into everlasting habitations? With what God's given you, what are you doing to make friends for heaven? Let's all stand and